0: Welcome to the second episode of the Elder Things Podcast. I'm David Boren. And this is Lee Murdaugh. Thanks for listening. We've got a few news items to start out with. The first one is that Sandy Peterson, the original creator of the Call of Cthulhu RPG, and the setting that the LCG is based on now, is coming out with a new Cthulhu game. Is originally going to be for iPhone, iPad, and Android, and depending on how well their Kickstarter goes, possibly other platforms later. Cool. This is a turn-based strategy game. It's basically about an end of the world scenario where the ancient ones are battling it out over the remnants of our planet. So uh, if you get a chance, uh, check out Cthulhu World Combat.
1: And they so said that was going to be on the iPad?
0: Yeah, it's for iOS in general, so to work on okay. any platform there. Android, and if they do well enough, they're talking about PC, Mac, Xbox Live, and Wii as possible platforms. Oh, cool. So, anyway, in addition to being Call of Cthulhu creator, Sandy Peterson also was a designer throughout the entire Age of Empires series, so the man pretty much knows strategy games. <laughs> All right. We're still waiting for Worlds. That's going to be coming up this weekend. But the European Championships are over, held in Liege, Belgium. Sounds like they had a pretty good turnout with 24 attendees there.
1: How many so, showed up at
0: um, Gen Con? At uh, Gen Con, let's see, I think we had about, I think it was like 17 or so. It's a good turnout. Yeah. Anyway, the decks are not posted because some of the members are planning to go to Worlds, and, you know, they don't want to reveal their decks before they go. But they have promised that all the decks will be posted after Worlds is over. So congratulations to the people there. First place was Damien. Second place, Minus, or Minus, however you pronounce that. And Mzi M-Z-I, in third place.
1: Oh, they haven't posted what their decks are, but have they posted what types, you know, what their uh, factions not, are? Not
0: really. Actually, two decks have been posted the third place deck, mm-hmm. and I think it was the eighth place deck, but uh, most of the members are waiting until Worlds are over before putting that up. And now they didn't list general information, you know, like faction mix or anything like that either yet. Oh, okay. Well, that'll be something we can discuss next time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll have plenty then with all the tournament results coming in, including the 2012 Australian National Championships. Well, maybe a couple episodes down the line, that's going to be in December 9th, so after Worlds. Right. Last item, congratulations to Jim Black, former world champion of the Call of Cthulhu LCG. He was inducted into Fantasy Flight Games Hall of Heroes a few days ago. Next, we should uh, answer a few beginner
1: questions. So, question number one. What is Call of Cthulhu, and why should I play it?
0: Yeah, so Call of Cthulhu, of course, is one of the LCG games from Fantasy Flight. That means it's basically like a CCG, but without all the random packaging and things that make CCGs kind of unpalatable to a lot of people. You buy a pack of cards, and you know exactly what you're getting, and every card is available to everybody. Yeah, it's pretty good. However, I still have to collect them all. Yep, yeah, so but starting out, you know, you don't need too much. No, no, not everybody has to have everything. But if you're, And it's
1: not required even in this game.
0: Oh, no. But if you're possibly looking at more than one of the LCGs, some of the nice things about this one, there's really a lot of freedom in the game. There are factions. In fact, there's eight of them plus neutrals now. But you can mix factions freely in your deck as much as you want to. There's no artificial limitations put on you for that. You can have as many as you want. In addition to that, if any of you have played Magic, there are no land cards in Call of Cthulhu. You can't get Mana Flooded or Mana Screwed or whatever all the terminology is there. Every card is simultaneously a resource, which means that every card, even if it's something you don't want to play right now, has something useful that it can contribute to your game.
1: Right. And there's some really good articles on the Fantasy Flight website that talk about resourcing, and we can definitely talk about those in the future, you know, as far as what cards to resource which cards never to resource
0: and things like that. Yeah, it can really be an important decision at times. If you resource cards at the wrong time, they might be things that you wish you had back later. There are some ways to get them back, but uh, not a great deal. True. And um, don't forget about the mulligan rule. That's right. Also, if you have you know a bad initial draw, you start off with eight cards, and you'll pick three of them to be your initial resources, and the other five stay in your hand. But if you don't like what you got, uh, you're allowed one mulligan, So, you know, they'll give you a second chance at it. So
1: question number two is what should I buy to get started? Now, I recommend that if you're brand new to the game, just buy a core set. That will give you the idea of whether or not you like the game or not. But if you do, then you should probably get a faction starter, maybe Secrets of Arkham, the Silver Twilight box, the Miskatonic box, something like that. What
0: do you think? Yeah, well, most of the faction starters, of course, aren't out yet. We're just seeing the, the beginnings of those. If you do happen to like Miskatonic or Silver Twilight and kind of want to make that your chosen faction, then that's a really good option. If you're not sure or you like to play a variety of sets, then I'd probably go with getting a core and then Secrets of Arkham as your first expansion. Right. Right. But definitely, if you're into it, get two cores, at the very least. Yeah, at some point, you're going to want the second core. Opinions just differ on whether get that first or get a couple things first and go back to it. Ultimately, it's just kind of up to you. Right, right. I mean,
1: but there's some really... There's some key cards, especially in Cthulhu Faction, you know, Deep One Assault, things like that, that you're going to want more than one copy of, so
0: for sure. Well, so once you've got enough cards beyond the core that you can start making up some decks and choosing what goes in and what doesn't, we wanted to kind of touch on some good deck building guidelines. Well, so a typical deck is going to be 50 cards. That's the legal minimum size, and like most of these sort of games, the closer you can be to the minimum size, the more consistent your deck is going to be. Usually for beginners, I'd recommend about thirty characters. The remainder of the cards split between events and supports, but more of them being events.
1: Yes, especially because supports have a problem with card advantage, especially attachments. You destroy the character, and
0: then the item's gone, too. So that's two for one. Also, some people, early on, until they kind of get the feel of the the proper flow of the game, they can think that it's too mathy, counting icons, or that it could kind of stall. And events solve that problem really well, because it gives you something unexpected that you can't count ahead of time what's going to happen to the stories. True. Most decks are going to be a single faction or dual faction. There's probably more two-faction decks, you know, overall.
1: Yeah, initially, with just one core, you're definitely playing a two-faction deck. Oh,
0: yeah. And when you first start collecting, you're not going to have enough cards to play a mono-faction deck. No, not the beginning, but once you have a few expansions, you can. True. True. So The other thing you want to look at is kind of a cost curve of the cards that you put into your deck. If you have just a core, the cards probably run on slightly to the expensive end. You usually want to have a decent amount of lower-cost cards that you can play early in the game or that towards the mid-game you can play off of your smaller domains. You, know, you may end up with one big domain and like a couple of little ones. We'll have to cover this more in depth in one of our future episodes, but as you're constructing a deck, you want to think ahead of time about the domains you're going to use, the order you're going to build them up, and sort of have a goal of when you are going to stop resourcing, that you can keep more cards available for play. Anyway, that's going to be a subject for some later coverage, so tune in a few episodes from now for that.
1: This Sunday was the Call of Cthulhu Finals, and I happened to watch this on Justin TV, and it was Tom Kapoor, who's a three-time world champion, versus Graham H. It doesn't have his last name listed here, and he's a three-time European champion. Graham was playing Miskaton and Castor Rush deck, and Tom Kapor was playing a Yog deck similar to the one he played at Nationals. And Tom won in the fastest final match that they can remember in a long time. It was 10 minutes long. Wow. Yeah. Turn 2, Nyarlathotep, and Miskatonic Castor Rush just couldn't catch up.
0: Yeah, that's funny. The Rush deck got shut down before it could rush there. It sure did. He had Nyarlathotep out, he had Twilight Gate, and those two
1: cards were just money for him.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that's a change from his Gen Con deck, because I don't remember him playing Tap when we were there.
1: Well, hopefully he'll post a decklist now that the Worlds is over. I'm really interested to see what these deck lists are. Interestingly enough, in the footage, Tom had mentioned that the only thing he was worried about was one of these infinite combo decks, Yeah, which he didn't really tech against it, but he just hoped he didn't face it. Now, his opponent, Graham, he did tech against it, but didn't face it at all, so he had a lot of dead cards. But he made it to the finals, so it couldn't have been a bad deck.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was a good all-around deck, but just didn't have quite what he needed to take on Tom's. It kind of makes sense, though, that he built his deck that way. Since combo decks were so much more prevalent in the European championships,
1: it was definitely an interesting match. And if you go to Justin TV Fantasy Flight Games channel, it's about an hour and 38 minutes into one of the
0: videos on there. Okay, sounds good. Then you can grab just the 10 or so minute piece that you're looking for. Right, you can
1: just look in there and, and watch it. It's very interesting.
0: Okay, cool. We'll check it out.
1: So we should do our fashion overview.
0: Yeah, yeah, so the idea here was just to kind of hit a high level for each one and then we could go into more depth in a future show. All right. Well, let's see. Let's go in this order. Let's talk about agency. Well, the agency, you know, it's thematically it's police officers and private investigators named for the the Blackwood Detective Agency.
1: Right, that's from the role-playing
0: game. That's right, and even Harvey Blackwood, the owner, is represented as a character in there.
1: It also has a very x files kind of feeling to it, you know, where these are cops that know about the unknown and the, and the monsters and are sometimes prepared for it. That's right, and
0: they're ready to take it down with as much firepower as they can muster.
1: Right. They have a lot of combat, and actually pretty good amount of investigation. But, you know, just like all the human factions, they do have a weakness to terror, except for there are a number of willpower characters.
0: Yeah, not nearly as much a weakness as they could have, because they do have a lot of willpower, guys.
1: They do have a lot, but those guys tend to be
0: pricey. They do have a couple guys that grant willpower, though, that all the characters of the same story get willpower or something like that. They're pretty good about it, and it's possible to make a very willpower-intensive deck if you decide to build it that way. Well,
1: yeah, I've got one that that I like a lot. But you can do a rush strategy, and you can actually do a lot of board control with them because they've got things like shotgun blast and, and shotgun and prize pistol and these other support cards that allow you to just wound... Targeted wounding, you know, you can't normally target a wound in, in the combat stroke, but these guys have some cards that allow them to do that.
0: Right, yeah, the, lots of weapon attachments, wounding events, you know, things that either give them extra combat or just let them pick an enemy character and shoot them. So, right. they're definitely feared for that. So, let's
1: move on to the Syndicate. We're going to talk about the Syndicate in more depth later, but let's go ahead and give the broad strokes.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's what, what Are Cops Without Some Robbers in there, too. There you go. The syndicate is the organized crime faction. You've got gangsters, mobsters, all that kind of thing. And it's, it's a 20s kind of setting, so you've got prohibition going on and all that sort of deal.
1: Speakeasies.
0: And- yep, yep. Anyway, they're the guys who might not win in a straight-up fight, but it uh, doesn't matter because they don't fight fair. That's right, they're sneaky. Syndicate is really good at controlling who is able to go to a story and who isn't, or just controlling the situation around a story. Right. They have
1: skill reduction themes, they have uh, exhaustion themes where they can just exhaust the other guy's board. Yep. And then just kind of go whatever stories they want to. Um, So it does have some good stuff, but like I said, we'll talk about this more in depth when we talk about this syndicate deck that we're going to feature this show. Okay, now we talked pretty much in depth about Miskatonic last time, so we just go over the broad strokes for
0: Miskatonic. Well, as you'd expect with a bunch of professors, they can't really fight their way out of a paper bag. They're fantastic at investigation, though, and good at arcane also, A lot of cheap guys, so they can rush. And with their faction box out, of course, they've got the most cards of any faction right now.
1: It seems to me that if you're willing to pay four or more for a card, then you get a little more than you normally would from a Miskatonic card.
0: Yeah, although a lot of their high-cost characters are also uniques, so sometimes you could end up with a dead card in your hand, something like that.
1: That's true, but they have some pretty iconic stuff.
0: Yeah, and plus thematically, I mean, they're right at the core of the mythos. The Miskatonic professors, the only guys who really understand a little bit about what's happening out there.
1: Okay, well, do you want to just hit the last human faction?
0: Yeah, so the last human faction was the last human faction to come out. (laughs) The Silver Twilight. These guys are cultists leading their secret lives during the day. They're government officials or people in position. And then they head off to the good old Water Buffalo Lodge and have their schemes They're a pretty cool faction, but they're not in the core set. So if you're a brand new player, you may not have seen these guys yet.
1: Well, the bonus there, though, is they do have their own faction box and have for a while. And the AP cycle that came out right after that box, Rituals of the Order box, there's quite a few good cards for that uh, faction in that AP cycle.
0: Yeah, if you wanted to get started with the Lodge, you you really just need their box. Yeah. And and that's enough that you can build some decks out of that.
1: Yeah, any of the AP cycles of the three since then will have the cards in it. So definitely, if you're just starting, you might be okay with just the box, but you might want to look into getting some of the APs afterward.
0: So game Gameplay-wise, they're known for a lot of card bouncing effects, where cards are returned back to a player's hand, you know, or perhaps back to the top of their deck. They're kind of tricksy and combo-like, you know, so they're not as straightforward to play, for example, as somebody like Agency. No, they
1: seem kind of like a Rube Goldberg machine of cards, because you try to get some a certain ritual to go off, but you have to sacrifice so many characters, you have to have other characters that allow you to self-sacrifice them, and wow, it's just crazy what you can do.
0: Yeah, it's just tricky to get them really firing on all cylinders, but they can do some really neat stuff.
1: I personally like Master of Myths, because it's a tricky card. You know, you can put it in any deck, and you've got a willpower, toughness, three arcane dude that could just pop out on your opponent's turn. Right, you see a lot of
0: him these days.
1: <laughs> Matter of fact, Graham's deck in Worlds, he had Master of Myths on turn one.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not surprised he's a good asset if you're doing a rush deck. Yeah, he he's really good. Or really, almost any kind of deck.
1: But what's funny to me is I almost never use him offensively. I'm always using him defensively, but he was using him straight offensively to get those tokens.
0: Well, I think it it can depend on how many extra domains you've got. If you've got two domains ready, you could use one on your turn and one on your opponent's turn. Well, this is true. Especially early in the game, maybe he could only afford to bring out one character that turn or something.
1: Yeah, I'll be honest and say that I still haven't figured this faction out. There's still a lot for me to figure out with these
0: guys. Well, the best way is just to kind of jump in, start making decks, learn by doing. Yep,
1: I've got a Silver Twilight Syndicate deck I'm working on right now, so we'll see how that turns out.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, and of course you got the Lodge Barkeep in there. Uh,
1: (laughs) Yes, of course, because that's the only time you'll play him.
0: Yeah, he's one of very few characters in the game who belong to one faction but have steadfast icons for another, so he really only shows up when you're doing Silver Twilight and Syndicate in the same deck.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the monster factions. Well, we'll start with Cthulhu. It's the name of the game.
0: Yeah, the big green guy. That's that's what people love, man. I know I do. Cthulhu is king of destruction. They've got so many cards out that destroy supports or destroy other characters, maybe when they come into play or, or through events. And there are no slouches at combat either. Not quite as potent as Agency, but uh, you know, right up there behind them.
1: Their biggest weakness in my mind is that they take a while to get rolling. Let's say you have three turns that you need to really basically on the defense while you're trying to get your Ravagers out and enough resources to play Deep One Assault or any... What's
0: the other Deep One? Deep One Rising, I think.
1: Deep One Rising, yeah. That's another four cost. So by turn three, when you actually will have four, that's when you can really get rolling with the big guys. But up until then, you've got cards like Sacrificial Offering, which allows you to wound a character. Um, Then your opponent gets to wound one of your characters, but chances are you won't have one and things like that. So you try to control the board before they get their board developed, which can be tricky. It's definitely not a rush deck.
0: No, they do have a little bit higher average character costs than other factions, and they have some cost reducers, but mainly for specific themes. That's true. If you play a Deep Ones deck, it speeds them up, because they've got special cards to reduce cost of Deep One characters. True, and then they
1: have Serpent decks
0: too. They've got more and more cards
1: every time for Serpents, so that's good.
0: Serpents don't have as many cards as Deep Ones yet, so I think they're still fleshing that out. And there's a little bit of cost reduction for Serpents, but not on the order of what Deep Ones have.
1: No, they have very flexible icon.
0: Yeah. Serpents are a lot more terror-oriented than Deep Ones are, and they're very slippery. They can change their icons into different icons, you know, and things like that.
1: But basically,
0: Cthulhu is the
1: faction if you want to kill the other guys. It's got so much kill in it.
0: It's also well-known as being one of the best mono factions. Yes. That if rather than having a two-faction deck, you just want to have one, Cthulhu's well-rounded enough that they do well with that.
1: But because they provide that amount of kill, it's also good to mix into another faction. Let's talk about the King
0: in Yellow. Ooh, yeah, Haster. Not known so much as a good mono faction. Well, they've got the best Terror, and what they're particularly known for these days is taking control of other characters. Oh, sure. And it can be really irritating to have your best guys stolen by the Haster player.
1: I've never had that happen.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, as if that's not bad enough. Add insult to injury. If they steal a unique character, you can't even play another one because the limit of one unique character in play is by the owner of the card, not the current controller. So not only do they take your great unique guy, they stop you from putting another one in. Also, there's what is it, the lunatic strategy? Yeah, oh god, the lunatics are so much fun. By far, the most of them are in Haster. There's a couple in other factions, but a lunatic character has an ability where you can voluntarily drive your own character insane to get a beneficial effect. So some common cards from there would be like drive my guy insane to drive yours insane. They're all different. There's one that destroys locations you know the arsonist. They even have cards that do other things with lunatics. You know there's something like right. sacrifice a lunatic to do this. So it's really a fast developing theme for Haster that I think we're going to see continue to get flushed out over future sets. Definitely watch for the Haster box I'm going to make a call right now that it's going to have some cool lunatic stuff in it.
1: Oh, I can't wait. I'm just really excited to see what they do in that. Okay, so the next faction is yogg Let's see. I have to say that these guys are one of the coolest monster factions, just because of the recursion that they have.
0: Yeah, they've got a lot of cards that let you look at cards or rearrange cards, bring cards back, all, all that kind of cool stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. And if you have guys die, you can bring them back. If you play a spell event,
0: you can bring it back into your hand. Yeah, a high percentage of their events have the spell trait on them, and I've always felt they just had a fantastic toolbox of different event cards to work with. I mean, yeah, any effect you want, it's probably in there someplace. Yeah, they've got a lot of good stuff. Yeah, now their weaknesses, they don't have quite the muscle of some of the other Mythos factions.
1: But they've got some great effects. Like, let's go back to the Worlds deck here. Tom's deck had this Twilight Gate, and he actually noted it as one of the cards that was really helping his deck go and that was Twilight Gate as an event. It costs two. It says choose a non h one character card attached to one of your domains as a resource. You put that card into play under your control if that character is still in play at the end of the phase attach it to any of your domains as a resource. So let's think about what this does. It grabs a character, puts it in play. So it could be any high cost character. And then say you do it at the beginning of the story phase. So you put it in the story, comes back, it's still in play at the end of the phase. You can attach it to a different domain as a resource. So it allows you to accelerate the number of resources in one of your domains.
0: Well, not just accelerate, whatever it is that you need. Maybe you've been building up one domain to bring out a big character, and now you've already got them in play. and Now you want to start bringing out more medium guys, because that big one's a unique, and you don't need it that big anymore. That's
1: right. It gives you control over how your domains are set up. I would guarantee this is how he got that turn three at the tip That's how he did it. Any other Yogg cards that you think are
0: worth mentioning at this time? You know, there's so many cool things, but one that I've always kind of liked a lot, it's so flexible, you can do a lot of different things with it. The card is called The Prism of Many Views. Oh, yeah two-cost unique support card. Both players play with the top card of their deck face-up, and at any time you've got an action, you can exhaust Prism of Many Views to discard the top card of a player's deck. That's any player, so you can use this to for your opponent's deck. Hey, I'm, I'm going to discard your good card before you can draw it or something like that. You can use it on your own deck to get through the bad card you don't want. Right. You can use it to load that card into your discard, because you've got an event that pulls it out of the discard. If you've got an effect that looks at the top deck and you know, compares its cost to something sure you could use prism to help set it up for better odds of success and of course both players gain information they wouldn't usually have right but yeah it just really it changes the whole kind of feel of the game and if you've built your deck to take advantage of it you probably have some of these effects that benefit from you being able to move cards in and out of the discard
1: Alright, so Shub Niggurath is the last. She is the Black Goat of the Woods, the all-mother. the All-Mother. That's right. She is really good at pooping out a bunch of monsters.
0: That's what she does. They've got fantastic character acceleration. I mean, yeah. really the best of anybody. If you want to flood someone with a lot of heebie-jeebie characters, Shub's your guy girl right they're also really well known for support destruction so in today's meta support cards are kind of on an upswing right and Shub can blow them away like nobody else right burrowing beneath thunder in the east yep that too and any of the chthonians yeah grasping chthonian play that you get a support destruction and a character in one go that's pretty good
1: and then we should definitely not fail to mention the migo sub-faction in there
0: yeah, the Bego, they were explorers before they were cool. Yeah. The fungi from Yugath. Yeah, they look like bugs but they're not. They're a really, really cool theme to play because they all grant each other icons and abilities. They've actually got a good assortment of support cards that work with them too. Yes. You know, the Bego scalpel and skull and things like that. Oh
1: yeah. It kind of reminds me of the Slivers from Magic. Mm-hmm. They just all give each other stuff and while it can make it kind of, at first, difficult to track what has
0: what. You can forget sometimes
1: you definitely can forget oh that had
0: a terror icon on it now
1: but it's really kind of fun
0: well hopefully they'll get flushed out when the shove box comes and we may see a few more amigo cards come in i think they're really close to being a very viable theme
1: I think as far as viable themes go, pretty much any theme is viable in this meta because it's such a wide open thing. You never know what you're going to come across.
0: Yeah, I guess what I'm thinking there is viable at the highest level. Oh, sure. In casual play, you can put almost anything into a deck. Almost any card is going to find its way into a deck sooner or later, you know, or or works well in some combo. None of them are just crap.
1: Well, that's true. Um, There are conditional cards, but Damon likes conditional cards. So that's going to continue to happen. and. I say more
0: power to them, you know? Yep, yep,
1: Okay, so while not a faction of their own... No,
0: not technically. ...we would be remiss in not mentioning the neutrals. Yeah, so neutral cards can be put in any deck. They're not technically a faction, which means they work a little bit goofy with, with some cards that look at a faction or say that two factions have to be the same or whatever. But mostly neutral just provides a, a nice pool of cards that anybody can use. There's a lot of neat stuff in there. That's true. Well, in fact, we're going to be talking in a minute about a Syndicate deck that's got several neutral cards in there.
1: Oh, let's go ahead and move on to that. Okay. What we want to do as a recurring segment is talk about a deck theme or archetype, such as maybe a Rush deck or a Control deck. But this time we're going to talk about a theme, and that theme would be Syndicate Skill Reduction.
0: Yeah, I would have to say that this archetype really kind of rose to prominence about a year ago with the card Mr. David Pan. This came out last year at Gen Con as part of the Jade Emperor pack. So one of the cool things about the card David Pan is that the whole card is actually kind of an end joke. There was a movie back in the 80s called Big Trouble in Little China. Really, really cool movie. Highly recommended. And the bad guy in there is this ancient Chinese guy named Lo Pan, and you eventually find out partway through the film that his full name is David Lo Pan, and the artwork on this card looks quite a bit like him as the old Chinese gentleman. Anyway, it's pretty cool, so check it out if you get a chance. But let's go ahead and take a look at his card. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Cost 3, skill 4, unique character. He's a criminal. When resolving struggles at a story that Mr. David Pan is committed to, count the total skill of all participating characters instead of the icons to determine the winner of each struggle. So, with this guy around, icons don't mean much of anything. Terror icons will still prevent you from going insane, but other than that, they're, they're fairly meaningless. True. Whichever side has the most total skill is going to win all of the struggles, whether they have any icons for that struggle on any of their characters or not. So, Mr. David Pan has sort of the equivalent of four terror, four combat, four arcane, four investigation. He's a potent guy, and once you get somebody like that into play, now, of course, your opponent, they're getting a bunch of free pseudo-icons, too. He's not, like, actually a 16-icon ridiculous guy. True. But anyway, with skill becoming the, the bar by which everything is measured, all of the syndicates, characters, and events that can monkey with skill suddenly become a lot more dangerous.
1: That's true. If you're mixing it with another faction that has high-skill, fast characters, like Insect Swarm, something like yeah. that... Then that's really good.
0: Yeah, Shub's got some high skill, cheap characters in there, and I think Yogg does too. Right. Or you can also just go Mono Faction.
1: I think the deck that you made is monofaction, Faction, right?
0: Yeah. Let's talk about some of the major moving parts of this okay. deck. So first off, Mr. David Pan's just a given because he's kind of the enabler of the whole thing. Right. And there's a neutral card called Parallel Universe, a one-cost support, but you can play it as an action. So it really kind of behaves more like an event. You can play it whenever you like and it attaches to a story card. It makes that story card all struggles there resolved based on skill too. So that's kind of your second Mr. David Pan since he can't be everywhere as a unique character. Then the next big piece is the syndicate characters that can reduce or sometimes increase your own skill in a reusable fashion. And there's four of these in here. Okay. What's the first one? Okay, we've got the, the Clover Club Bouncer is the first one you'll come across. He's a cost one, one skill, no option. Icons, You know, it doesn't immediately look all that imposing. But you can exhaust him to choose a character and give them minus one skill. He probably won't even go to stories. You'll just keep him in the backfield, use him as support. And he's a one-drop. Yeah, real easy to get into play. And if you ever need a guy to take a bullet, you're not too sad about losing him. That's right. Then we've got the Clover Club Torch Singer. Cost two. She's got a combat two skill, so she's she's not bad. Pay one to choose a character until the end of the phase that character gets minus two skill. So minus two, that's a pretty hefty reduction, and you can use it more than once if you've got more domains. So in this deck, I've chosen to put in the card Eldritch Nexus which gives you an extra domain mainly to help pay for abilities like hers where I can pay one and get another skill drop. Right. Third one up is the Tattoo Artist. She's a cost two again, skill two, same as Torch Singer. Two arcane icons. After Tattoo Artist is committed to a story, choose a character. That character gets plus two or minus two skill until the end of the phase. So the good thing about her is it doesn't cost you an exhaustion. It doesn't cost you a domain All it costs is that she's going to a story. Plus, it works in both offense and defense. That's right. You could use it either way. I've got her in the deck, too. And then the fourth character, a relatively recent release, is Street Tough. Now, of the four, he is the only one I did not put in this particular deck, partly because I felt that I already had enough reduction going on. Mm -hmm. But let's go over him real quick. He's cost two, a combat, zero skill, so that's a drawback. Right. His action is pay one to choose a non-Ancient one character. That character gets minus two skill until the end of the phase, and Street Tough gets plus two skill until the end of the phase. Oh, so it causes a four-point swing. Right. Now, he's actually very, very similar to Torch Singer. If you use his ability once, he'll have two skill just like Torch Singer does. So the only time that he's better than Torch Singer is if you're going to use his ability more than once. Right. So that's why I've opted to take Torch Singer over him. In addition, Torch Singer can target Ancient Ones and Street Tough can't. That's true. So I would grade him as being a little bit weaker of a card, and that's why I chose the the way I did to go with Torch Singer. Right. But if you need more skill reduction in the deck, you can only take three Torch Singers, so... It's very possible you'll decide that you don't want the others, or you're going to load up with more one domains through things like Eldritch Nexus, and you do expect to pay for his ability more than once a turn. That's true. In that case, you know he could get the nod.
1: So I noticed that these guys all have a cost of two or less.
0: Yeah, they're all pretty cheap, and actually, except for Tattoo Artist, they're all criminals as well which means you can discount them with Johnny V's Dame.
1: Okay, so she's another part of the plan.
0: That's another character I've put in the deck. She's not directly related to skill reduction, but she helps you get the guys who are out into play quickly.
1: Also a two-cost character. So it sounds to me like in this kind of deck, you're going to be resourcing more across the board flat rather than building up one domain really big.
0: Yeah, actually, you know, we played some games with this deck right. the other day. I never built a domain bigger than two, I don't think.
1: Um No, and you had Johnny V's Dame out, so is that how you were getting David Pan out?
0: Yeah, he's a cost three, and he's a criminal, so you can play him for two with Johnny V's Dame, and you can actually... Put him into play for free with an event I've got in here, Han twelve three. This is a card from the recent Miskatonic box, one of the prophecies. After a character has had its skill lowered by a card effect, and we just talked about a lot of ways you can right. do that, then discard this card to put a syndicate character into play from your hand. So I use that to put into play expensive characters like Mr. David Pan. Wow. And he's not expensive. Well, he's a 3. In this deck, he's the more expensive guy, but yeah, in the grand scale, he's not that much. So the most expensive
1: guy in the deck you built was Hack Journalist?
0: Hack Journalist is a 4, and he's a guy that he could stay or go, but he's kind of an emergency character. You can sacrifice him to choose a story... And move all the success tokens from one side of the story to the other. So if your opponent's got a lead on a story, he's got three or four tokens, and you think you're going to lose it, then Hack Journalist may be something to save your butt. Ah, I see. I like him. So now that we've got a lot of these characters in and we're dropping people's skill all over the place, how do we capitalize on that? We're capitalizing on it some through David Pan and Parallel Universe just because we're winning a lot of struggles and maybe killing guys, sending them crazy. But that's not enough. We also want to see what else we can do to our opponent. So uh, there's a lot of cards in the game that will do things to characters with low skill. And I have just picked a few of them to put in here. There's so many choices you could do this. Tear Gas is one that I put. This is an event that just costs one, attach it to a character, they get minus one skill, and if their skill drops to zero, they're destroyed. Huh? So they're already a little closer to zero, because Tear Gas gives them minus one. So if there's a specific character you don't like, you throw this on them, target them with any one of your characters here that can drop skill, and they're out of the picture. Similar to that, we've got a neutral card Crowbar. This is an attachment that you give to one of your characters. You exhaust the attached character and return crowbar to your hand to wound a character with skill 1 or lower. Oh, so there you go. Another way to take somebody out, and note that both of these are targeted effects. You can take out whatever character that you want to aim it at. They don't have to be a story, whatever. Right. You can damn them. So uh, we've also got here, this one doesn't directly kill people, but faint. Zero cost neutral event. Choose a character, they get minus two skill, and lose a combat icon. Oh, well, there you go. The skill could set them up for something bad. Losing the combat icon actually doesn't have any effect if they're at one of these skill-based struggles. That's true. But it's a zero event, though, which is nice because your opponent doesn't see it coming. If all your domains are filled, you can still play this on
1: Right, so if you're playing that and then you play Tear Gas... So it's not really great to use two cards to get rid of one card, but that's not the point. Card advantage is not going to win you a match with this particular deck because this deck is all about controlling the board with the skill.
0: Right. And plus, not all your stories are going to be going off of skill. There's three stories in play. David Pan can only be at one. Parallel Universe is probably at one or nine. Right. So you might need Fate at one of the other stories. That's right. Then one more card kind of in that list, Bounded Gagged, is something you can toss on a character with skill two or less. It gives them a blank text box and they can't commit to stories. So it doesn't kill them, but sometimes with a unique character, this is actually better than killing them. Right. Because uh, they stay in play, and your opponent can't play another copy of that character to replace them, where a dead character, they could.
1: Yeah, in Magic, we called that a wallpaper card. Wallpaper. It just it makes them wallpaper. Can't attack, can't defend.
0: Okay. Anyway, so that's a lot of the core cards in the deck. And you can expand this in a variety of ways. One of them there's several cards for Syndicate that cause characters not to count their skill. For example, I've got here Raisin Hoodlum. He's a cost two criminal, so again you get that discount. Characters without a combat icon committed to the same story do not count their skill. Guys like that can be invaluable if your opponent has a lot of characters that don't have combat. And there's a whole suite of similar guys for each icon.
1: So, real quick, for making a Syndicate deck of this type, the Core Set plus what would somebody need to procure?
0: Well, the biggest thing that you would want is the Curse of the Jade Emperor. Because that gives you Mr. David Pan, and he's the linchpin of the whole deck. And I notice a lot of the other
1: cards are Core cards. There's a lot of Core cards in this deck.
0: There's a good number of Core cards in here, and most of the rest of the cards you can replace potentially with something else. But the core will give you Clover Club Bouncer and Torch Singer, and then you'll probably want one other skill-reducing characters, and you can take your pick for that. Tattoo Artist is from Murmurs of Evil. Yeah, and the Yogath Contract. Street Tough is from Touched by the Abyss. That's actually the newest pack, the last pack that came out before it switched over. If you want to speed things up, you know, get all your criminals out faster... Johnny V's Dame comes from Aspirations of Ascension. Anyway, once you understand the theme of the deck, you can go into a deck builder such as the one hosted on Card Game DB or the one in Lackey or something, do a search for characters, well not just characters, but all cards for Syndicate that have the word skill in them. Right. Yeah, so you'll be able to pick out a good assortment of things that would be useful to that theme. So the ones i picked here, I mean, these are just a sample. There's a lot of other cards that mess with skill or do things to people with low skill, and you can pretty much swap out one for another. I'm going to toss Crowbar, but I'm going to put in disease Sewer Rats, you know, or something like that. Right. It's whichever one season to taste.
1: Okay, I have another question. Yeah. What would you do to defend against a deck like this?
0: Okay. Well, this is a rush deck. They've got lots of guys out here that are low cost and being played quickly like we said. Right. So any of the things you normally do against that, some good early defensive characters uh, have terror and combat. Until David Pan comes out, things are going to be operating still conventionally. Right. Where it's not all based on skill. And blocker characters, you know, things like Master of the Myths works well. Most of these little guys, because they're little, you know, they don't have a lot of icons and they may tend to be of low skill themselves. We got hit with a Yohanathle statue the other day. Yeah, with my uh, Cthulhu murder deck. Yeah, and that'll kill some of the characters in this deck. It took out my Johnny V's Dame, my Clover Club Bouncer. I didn't have him in play, but it would have killed Fugitive Scientist also. So that's all kind of a problem. And because David Pan is a sort of a linchpin of the deck, if you have targeted effects that destroy or drive insane or things like that, you can take him out of play. He actually doesn't have a single printed icon, so he's got no protection against insanity. He's not too hard to render an operative. If you can kind of throw this deck off of its stride by keeping him out of play for a little bit, then all their skill effects don't mean as much, and basically got got a lot of low cost, low icon guys running around wondering what to do. Right. So there are some issues, and in order to help deal with that situation, that's why we got a few of these rainy day cards in here. You know, we can still throw bound and gagged on you and still destroy you with tear gas. A Hack Journalist is still available if we run into trouble. I've got Intimidate in there that can be used to exhaust somebody, and a few cards that just have some good conventional icons, like Fixer, for instance. Fixer actually works really well in this deck. He's normally a three-cost character with two combat and an arcane, but he automatically becomes discounted if there are any attachments in play at all. And we've got several here, because Tear Gas, Crowbar, and Bounded and gagged are all attachments, so each even if you've just lost your Johnny V's Dame and your domains are small, you can still probably play him for very cheap. And he's got the kind of icons that could help stiffen up your team a little bit. Oh, no, I'm good. I'm going to put the whole deck list in the episode notes. So you should be able to see that whatever kind of uh, podcast reader you've got. Normally there's a function that you can see those. And when I post up the episode announcement, I'll put it into there as well.
1: Okay, great. So next time, this is where we would like some feedback from the listening audience here. If you have a specific deck theme or archetype that you'd like to see, let us know. Otherwise, we'll just keep picking them ourselves. And we haven't decided what we're going to do next time, but I've got some ideas.
0: Okay, we'll be looking forward to seeing some of those.
1: Okay, before we go here, we'd like to do a few shout-outs. I would like to uh, mention a number of other LCG podcasts that we are listeners of and we enjoy much. There's Cardboard of the Rings, which is a Lord of the Rings LCG podcast. Brandon and company over there do a really good job there, and I look forward to their bi weekly ish episodes. And then there's Will Lentz and his friends over there on Two Champs and a Chump for the Game of Thrones podcast. I really enjoy that one. Okay, and also uh, Agenda 7 and The Icebox are two new podcasts for the Netrunner, Android Netrunner LCG, and you can look them up on iTunes. i um, also like to thank Card Game DB for hosting us, and if you're interested in HP Lovecraft and his literature,
0: you should listen to HPPodcraft.com. I just started listening to that recently. They've got sort of two main kinds of episodes, one where they read the stories in the form of like an audio book, and then other ones where they expect that you've already read the story, and then they kind of do a discussion about it, you know, themes, symbolism, and all that kind of thing, but not in the, the crappy high school English sort of way.
1: Right. By and large, it's the second kind. The readings, they probably have six readings, but they have over 130 episodes of them just discussing H.P. Lovecraft's work, not in order of publication, but in order that it was written. So you get to start when his writing was crappy, and then it got better and better, and the really bad New York years, and then he moved back from New York, and he wrote Call of Cthulhu, and everything just started going.
0: I haven't gotten to that point yet, but isn't it so that once they ran out of Lovecraft's own stories, they've started doing other authors in the mythos?
1: Well, not necessarily mythos authors yet. What they're doing is Lovecraft wrote a popular essay called Supernatural Horror in Literature, and he mentioned a lot of other weird fiction authors and a lot of stories. What they're doing is they're going through that essay, and they're covering those stories. Okay. So we get to hear the yellow sign, so we know where Hastur came from. You know, that was Robert Chambers. And then we get, they covered the signalman, which was Charles Dickens, of all things. And basically, Lord Dunsany and Algernon Blackwood, they're covering the Willows right now. So these are all classic, weird fiction, the stuff that was Lovecraft's, what he liked. So it's kind of sure. interesting. Cool. It's, it's really good. Um, but you know, there was only a finite amount of Lovecraft work. But you know, it took them seven episodes to do Mountains of Madness. And that was some funny stuff.
0: Yeah, well that's one of his longest works too. Yeah, his longest
1: ones were that one, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, and those were good episodes too. But I just recommend Start from the Beginning, Chris and Chad are hilarious, and they cover the stories in that kind of you and me BSing way about it.
0: Yeah. The first episode has kind of a good brief biography of Lovecraft too.
1: And the last episode that they did for the Lovecraft run was really good, kind of a synopsis about it. So it kind of was a good bookend for that. But I definitely recommend that one. So, David, if somebody wants to get in contact with us, how would they do that?
0: Well, you can reach us at elderthingspodcast at gmail.com for any questions, comments, or suggestions. We'd love to hear from you guys. And we also tend to show up on the Fantasy Flight and Board Game Geek forums for Call of Cthulhu. That's where we will be announcing things when we have new episodes out.
1: Until next time, you've been listening to the Elder Things Podcast.